Hello and welcome to the Activist Podcast, brought to you by Vegan FTA, vegan for the animals. I'm your host, Gareth Skir, and I will also be joined by my wonderful co-host and wife, Jackie Norman. In this episode, we have the insightful Claire Mann. Known as the vegan psychologist, Claire has been putting her skills to good use in helping people to understand the term dystopia and how it plays into the daily life of vegans. As part of this interview, we talk about how Claire coined the term what it means, how it can affect us, and also about the book she wrote about it. She also shares some brilliant tips for communicating with non-vegans by utilizing their own curiosity to help the animal's cause. We hope you learn as much from this episode as we did. And be sure to check out our social media pages at VeganFTA on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, where you can also find the series in video format. Claire, for those of our viewers out there who are new to veganism and activism especially, can you tell us a little bit bit about who you are and what you do? Thank you. Well, the short version is I'm a vegan psychologist, communications trainer and animal rights campaigner. And the long version, because the older you get, you realize you've got a bit of a history, is I've been a psychologist over 30 years and I started off as an organizational psychologist working in organizations and helping teams to develop and and work more effectively together. Um, I then got into training and development. I've been a university lecturer, um, but it was only 10 years ago that I became vegan. And there's a whole story as there is to everybody's there. And I realized that there was a specific need for vegans who had become aware, particularly of the industrialized abuse of animals, to actually call myself a vegan psychologist, study that, and also develop strategies for other vegans to to work through the knowledge of what they know and then be the best they can in in being part of the solution. So, and I'm in Sydney, Australia, and um, and I guess it shows up in all sorts of ways. I see people face to face around the world or online as well, of course, and I do a lot of training and development, a lot of speaking around the world, and and um, yeah. That's me. <laughs> it's awesome and so, so much needed. You know, I think I'm sure there's going to be so many people, you know, watching this and just, you know, identifying with, with what we're going to be talking about. Um, as you say, you know, your story, you've got quite a, a backstory, your, your journey to, to becoming vegan. And um, it's, it's really powerful, you know, when, when we listen to it, it's uh, quite an emotional one. And one, um, you know, as fellow immigrants to New Zealand, we both identify with your experience a lot. Um, I also really identify with uh, the catalyst for you, uh, you know, making that, that first step. So um, where and when did your path towards veganism begin? Well, the, again, there's a short and a long answer. <laughs> Although I've been vegan, um, as every vegan always says, if I knew way back then what I know now, I would have been vegan on the spot. Because once, as we know, once you open your eyes, you wake up to a completely different world and you can't believe that you didn't know. So my journey actually, um, certainly an animal rights campaigner, it happened when I was about eight years old. We'll come to that if necessary in a moment. But it was really at the age of 17, which is over 40 years ago. I don't know. I don't think you were born then, were you? <laughs> oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> well, not, not all of us, but yeah. <laughs> This is a beautiful thing about vegans. You look at it, you go, gosh, they are really, they, you know. So it's quite interesting. But um, I was 17 years old and I was living in the south of England. And I read a book by Bob Geldof. Now, I don't know if your viewers know him or I can see you nodding, of course. Um, I always say to people when they say they don't know him, I say, walk into a shopping mall over the Christmas period and you'll hear a song called And So This Is Christmas. Well, that's Live Aid, which was a group he set up with other uh, musicians and artists around the world to raise money really to for a, a starvation a famine that was going on in Africa at the time late 70s early 80s but he wrote a book about his life which think about it over 40 years ago he must have been terribly young and it was called is that it and he talked about being in Ireland as a young person and one of his first jobs was working in an abattoir and I didn't see anything or hear anything but as I'm telling you now, I can recount exactly what happened to a cow as um, she went to her death. And I was so horrified that this would go on. And I then, in my teen years, sort of justified, you know, gosh, is it just in Ireland? This can't be happening now, et cetera, et cetera. But I gave up meat on the spot and I didn't want to be part of it. So I guess I became a vegetarian. 
and a bit of chicken and that sort of thing. Not thinking for a moment, this is always bewildering to all of us, isn't it? So I carried on as I guess as a vegetarian, which way back then was seen as very fussy and difficult. But you know, you could just leave things out of meals really. Um, and luckily, I thought I was allergic to dairy products, but I found out I wasn't a baby calf. Which is, <laughs> <laughs> I think you just love it when people say that. I'm I was allergic. brought up the same. Yep, I was allergic to dairy products, apparently. <laughs> and my you know, children. <laughs> yeah, that's right, because it's so normal to eat the reproductive mucus secretions of other animals. So normal. <laughs> and um, so luckily, um, I was told by a, a medical herbalist that, you know, you having a reaction to the protein in cow's milk. So all that came out of my life. And so that was probably over 20 years ago. Um, but then we get to the vegan story. And I was living like yourself in New Zealand at the time. And my partner and I were building an off-the-grid house. We were going to live incredibly sustainably, which we did. And um, ran a business at the time on off satellite internet powered by solar on the, the top of the south island living that sort of life thought we'd found paradise but of course when you live on the land um you realize that these beautiful images of cows skipping across fields is not quite what it is and i came across the dairy industry and babies taken away from their mothers and this awful crying that went on for over 30 hours and then suddenly stops and i came across the hunting um in new zealand where I would find baby pigs and their mothers, well, the mothers were taken away and frozen the next day and the mothers had been shot. The dogs had been thrown back in cages in minus seven degrees, howling and scored by pigs. It was awful. And I think it's very easy, perhaps people listening to this, is we think these are just a few bad apples. When we start to realize that these are embedded socially and culturally and institutionalized, that causes a problem. So having a problem there but didn't even know what a vegan was i had just thought they were those fussy vegetarian people and uh, came back to new zealand and my partner went and thought can't just be in new zealand so he went and looked at all the videos sat me down said we've got to listen to the look at the videos it was a pretty harrowing time we watched them all and then we became vegan on the spot including our dogs that was 10 oh, coming up to 11 years ago Oh, wonderful. Awesome. i got to say, like, for me personally, um, I emigrated over to New Zealand and beforehand I was a, a serious carnist and uh, the pig hunting thing was something that I got told about before I even went there, you know, it was one of like the draw cards, you know, I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to get me a pig dog and go out and go do the New Zealand hunting thing. And um, I'm so glad that I never actually ended up doing that because um, inflicting that, but yeah, it's, um, it's just such a cultural thing out here and Hopefully it's one of those um, old traditions that we can get rid of. But um, Vistopia is the term that you coined to explain the existential crisis experienced by vegans arising out of the awareness of the trance-like collusion with a dystopian world. It's a term that is so much needed and um, I'm sure it's a relief to many now to actually have something to recognize as, you know. Um, as a psychologist though, um, so you went vegan about 10 years ago. I assume you were practicing around that time. Was it any easier for you to sort of pierce the veil, having that um, psychological sort of knowledge and know-how? Or was it actually harder due to, you know, realizing that some of these people are psychopaths? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, the majority of people aren't psychopaths. I'd like to think not. I think we're getting a few coming to light at the moment. have been hiding in the shadows. And now we're actually seeing on a global scale. And I don't say that lightly you know, some of the darkness that is actually coming out. And I think we really need to sit up and, and look at some of that stuff. Um, but the majority of us, you know, could be putting the same um, label. You know, how we, we were paying for um, products of violence. We are, you know, murder victims on our plate. And we can't believe we didn't know it. You were even thinking of hunting. How is that possible? In the 19, early 90s, I wore fur. Wow, how is that possible? I used to milk cows. <laughs> that was the first thing I did. That was the first thing I learned to do when I moved to New Zealand wow. was learn how to milk a cow. Isn't that extraordinary? And of course, we're brought up with it. And it's normal. It's funny. And I can remember on a child at a far, on a farm in England doing that. So I think, um, you know, we've got to be compassionate to ourselves in many ways and realize the psychic defenses and the cultural embeddedness. Um, and the resistance to change that happens. But I guess as a psychologist, um, 
I say I started calling myself that about 10 years ago because it was needed. People said, well, I don't want to see a non-vegan psychologist. And I thought, well, you know, a psychologist doesn't have to experience everything that everyone else has experienced in order to help them. That's, you know, you'd already have to, you have to be a drug addict to see drug addicts. I mean, this is, we've gone through that. You have to have sufficient life experience, of course, and, um, you know, be able to call on that information, research and, and, and strategies to help people. But, but vegans particularly said, well, how can I see a non-vegan? Because it's not like talking about domestic violence. You don't necessarily assume your therapist is in involved in it. But unless you're vegan, you are contributing to it. You have to take steps, as you and I know, and, and, and people know, no doubt, listening to this. And so I, I started to call myself that. Um, but it's really interesting because a lot of non-vegans come and see me. I don't think they do the homework because I just have to put my name in and it would be me at vigils and, you know, standing outside places and holding up banners and things. But they seem to not. And maybe that they trust the establishment enough if they're referred by someone, they just take their word maybe. So I don't know if I'm answering your question here, but I think it's, I think psychologists, importantly, like, from a scientific background, get trained to to try and bracket their own assumptions and subjectivity to try and make sense of what's going on. I've always worked in more of a psychotherapeutic way, so I use the relationship with other people to, you know, I don't think I'm the expert on other people's lives. I'm certainly not trying to be the expert on my own, and that's, you know, that could be a challenge, can it, for us all? It's, um, but I think what I can help people with is, is helping them to become conscious leaders of their lives where maybe they're unconscious. So, you know, a lot of psychologists will talk about compassion, kindness, consciousness, but they will not necessarily go near the, the vegan issue. And is that a, psycho, like a psychopathy? Probably. <laughs> Don't quote me on that one. <laughs> I wonder if it's to do with, um, you know, thinking about what you say. I mean, I, I totally agree. Like, I, unless you are vegan, you couldn't possibly begin to understand or empathize or, or anything with, with yeah. someone, you know, who was also vegan. And I wonder with the non-vegans coming to see you, perhaps they think, as I once did, that, you know, vegan is simply a diet. It's just about food. They don't realize, you know, the whole belief it's a whole you know existential perspective you know it's a whole it's the it's core of, of everything you know um you know that just kind of sprung to mind there for me I don't know how true that that may be but um throughout your career and your life taking that um existential perspective seems core to your being as well um and but before we sort of delve too deep into things can you give us a, a layman's explanation of existentialism it's a big word <laughs> I'm awake <laughs> yeah, right. well you know it's an interesting one because if you delve into existential philosophy it really is heavy going. And I spent four years doing that and actually training as a therapist and actually being in existential therapy every week for four years. It was the most transformational um, process, especially with someone who didn't think they needed, you know, I'd gone through counseling and therapy in early times in my life. People have, you know, everyone, we all have challenges and I wholeheartedly believe in the investment. But um, to go into therapy when you're trying to train for something, you think, well, what's this about? And then the whole world opened up of just how limited we are and we see the world in a certain way. So, and existentialism is really a philosophy of what it is to exist. We don't ask that question. We get bored and we die, live and we die, but what does it actually mean to be, to be here? So I was fascinated with that thing. So to give you a real layperson sort of outline there, it's good to make a comparison with a whole concept in existentialism, which means that existence precedes essence. Many of our approaches are essence precedes existence. So say, for instance, if you make um, shoes, for instance, you, you set up a shoe company and the essence of the shoes are in your mind, in your vision, on your drawing board, before you put anything into action, they exist somewhere. So their essence, their shoeness exists and then you put the machinery into place and they come into existence and you go and sell them. That is existence precedes essence. Okay, sorry, essence precedes existence. Okay, in the same way, religious belief is often God made man and woman in his or her own image. Okay, so in other words, they had them, he, it says the Holy Father or whatever, whatever belief you're going with, 
is they have it in their mind of what a person will be and they come into existence. Existentialism turns it all on its head and it says existence precedes essence. So in other words, we are thrown into the world, into a social, cultural, family, time in history, and we come to know ourselves through relationships, relationships with our physical bodies, our environment, our culture, our ideologies, our parents, and so we are co-created. And that's why we know when you have children that are adopted, one stays in one family and one goes to another, they're completely different, particularly if there's completely different cultures. So these are, it's that whole nature-nurture debate, but it goes even further than that. That also says by a certain age, we get to a stage where we solidify and objectify the world, family, career, jobs, relationships, as if they're it. The existential view is that we are meaning-making people, and often we deny we have choice to change, or we can't see where the options are available. Is that layman's? Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, that, that's brilliant. Thank Perfect you so much. Yeah. When I was doing the research, yeah, I, I started going down a few rabbit holes when I started looking it up and making sure that I had it all right. And um, yeah, thank you again for explaining it. It's um, yeah, mm. it's brilliant to know. Um, we've already sort of touched on this previously. Um, so while you're practicing as a, a psychologist, you find yourself having patients referred to you um, from the doctors with things such as self-harming, uh, social adjustment or eating disorders, and many of these people just turned out to be, well, vegans struggling to cope with uh, living in this carnist world, you know, the dystopian world that we're in. Um, having these people treated with um, disorders for log logical responses to cruel, um, cruel ideas and cr the cruel way the world works, you know, um, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like having that um, experience of having them sent to you because of these I, what I would consider like misdiagnosis um, with with no professional background, but um, you know, and then also discovering that sort of that commonality which led to the creation of dystopia. Sure, absolutely. Well, you can imagine the um, relief that people when they came to see me because they may not have known I was vegan, and then they, you know, typical uh, uh, vegans, they'll tell you they're vegan. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and they would say, but do you really understand how bad this is? I said, well, and I, I just had to say, actually, yes, I think I do. And they just couldn't believe that, you know. And I think, um, you know, I'm still able to keep a professional distance to help them in that sort of sense. But it made me very angry, actually. I, I really get fired up if there is abuse of power. So if people, you know, the old person in the old person's home who, is deliberately kept in the cold or something and they have no voice or where children's you know health is at stake or something or they're used in certain ways or are animals and so i thought these poor vulnerable individuals going to doctors by the way you know vegans could have self-harm eating disorders and social adjustment i'm sure we've definitely got a social adjustment it's uh we need to relabel that as a pathology <laughs> it's because they question the norm we've got to be a little bit you know care but some people are just not able to fit into society it really means in the sense of not being able to function and, and cause all sorts of problems mm. on a daily basis um but they could have that however when they came to see me the pain they were talking about they they said well they say i've got an eating disorder because i won't eat the normal food with my family that doesn't make it an eating disorder and um, they were gluten-free, people wouldn't necessarily be getting upset. Um, a social adjustment, because I won't fit in with the normal traditions. Well, that's to do with conformity and pressure, and perhaps an, an individual, particularly a teenager coming to see me, would be, um, you know, they're starting to set some boundaries about their own independence, just a moment. But what really concerned me was um, self-harming, where psychiatrists or doctors had told people that they have such low self-esteem that they are punishing themselves by watching slaughterhouse footage. Now that absolutely outraged me. In other words, if someone uncovers abuse going on to, at that level or abuse in, a, in an orphanage or something, for a professional to say they are self-harming because they're opening their eyes up and want to take, tell the world and change it, that is that was wrong. And so that sort of energized me to think, to start to really look back at um, you know, other people that I'd seen, and my own experience is actually to start to say, no, there is a specific set of experiences and behaviors and anguish that is not pathological, i.e. not illness. It is perfectly normal and predictable and desirable. 
if we look at slaughterhouse footage or we look at animal testing or bear baiting or whatever it is and we are not affected by it that's a pathology that is either we've dumped, dumped somebody down so much they don't feel it and so really i'm saying that this is a existential perspective i.e the world you wake up one day and what used to be okay is now not okay and you almost can't believe it didn't happen you've had consciousness raised really to actually expand your window of compassion to to other beings really and then start to look at the cost on human life and on our environment and, and beyond so Vistopia was born out of experience with people but also my own felt experience of living in this not yet vegan world yeah oh that's awesome can just identify with that so much and it, it just makes perfect sense and, and like we said it, it's so much needed um once like you say once those eyes are opened everything changes everything changes so i was like you i was i was vegetarian for a long a long time and when i was farming in new zealand it was clean green i'm doing the wholesome thing old mcdonald you know <laughs> um and now for me to um you know look back at, at my time spent um as being part of the farming industry it is yeah. just horrendous it's really really hard to live with you know and um and we're all affected differently some people are mm -hmm. a lot more sensitive for want of a better word than, than others but you know like with the sort of house footage i mean i i've never been to to one like that but i talking of examples of how deeply it can be affected i had to write an article a little while ago and i saw one slaughterhouse image my first one ever um, and it was beyond my worst nightmares, yeah. anything I had ever imagined. I cannot, yeah. to this day, get that image out of my head. You know, it still wakes me up in the night. So, you yeah. know, to, it's God, it's no wonder people have trouble dealing with things like that. And there are people out there that see so much worse over and over and over again, mm -hmm. particularly these wonderful people that do endless vigils. Um, we've spoken about some of the symptoms of dystopia. Um, you know, what, what are the fit into that sort of bracket that, that you commonly see sure well really what you're talking about is um you know there's almost a post-traumatic response because yeah. you can't get it out of your mind if you see another one it tends to press the button and then brings forward the experience you felt the first time you ever saw that so there's this re-trauma that happens um so there's a range of i think psychological and emotional responses to do with anxiety depression post-traumatic stress disorder panic attacks you can get self-harm because people are so traumatized in themselves um extreme burnout of course um but uh, you know i was looking in the dystopia book at the moment of, you know i came up with nine which are more sort of social um in nature in one sense and one of them is misanthropy is actually hating human beings I think our rage can be so great that we can't believe people can be so selfish or so, but we've got to remember we were in that situation too. And you've been jogging along, you know, going home to your parents at certain times of the year and eating certain foods and wearing certain clothes, bringing up your children in a certain way, believing in nurturing them. And someone comes along and goes, hey, just a minute, that's all wrong. You know, it's quite a normal response to want to defend yourself and go, just a minute, you're telling me, because once we accept that, we have to say, what else don't we know? And that's really an existential crisis for people, without a doubt. So it's easier to shoot the messenger. And often, um, vegans can go through this, why won't they change? I did, and I've been pilloried from the community, and I've lost some of my friends, and um, <laughs> told I'm preachy, and I have reactions to these images. Um, so there, there can be that. And that's also, I don't think it's very vegan, funnily enough, because we're animals too you know um but it's understandable so a misanthropy is definitely one of them huge amount of sense of alienation from other non-vegans is you know friends that used to work don't suddenly work because again it's not like having a difference in politics or interests it's when you sit down and have a cup of coffee with them you don't see or we don't see milk going in the coffee we see a baby calf taken away from its parent so you might have sat with your friend and i'm testimony to this you know, friends that I've had for decades, the intimacy's gone, the, you know, I won't go to non-vegan restaurants or I won't eat where other people are. I'll go into a cafe and sit outside, but I'm not going to sit with people eating um, animals. And so it upsets and then people feel upset themselves because they've lost something and then they call you preachy. So there's this, this whole thing goes on. There's also a lot of guilt that you, we partook of that and why didn't we wake up sooner? Um, a lot of guilt that we're not doing enough to save the animals. These are all sort of typical symptoms that came up 
not only through my you know, in-depth time with people, um, but I did a, a survey of about 1,800 people around the world um, which was asking these questions. These were the typical things that came up. A feeling of guilt, and I think that's where burnout comes, and, and people do far too much. Um, one thing I, you know, I have worked through, but I certainly have had it, was an inability to enjoy thing, normal things in life. Going out for dinner, watching films, gardening, reading, thinking it's all a bit trivial. You know, why, why would we waste our time doing that? So I think, and that's very important when we come to think about self-care in a moment. And frustration when vegans don't ask normal questions this anger, our burden of knowing, it could just goes on. But one of the things is that powerlessness, particularly with health professionals, when they, you know, they say um, it's normal to do this, everyone else is doing it. And then you think, well, the world is going mad. These people are educated and trained and they can't see that this is not normal. So that gives you some of the typical symptoms, social, psychological um, and cultural, I guess. Yeah, that's brilliant. It's so I'm sure there'll be heaps of people nodding at their screens watching this. I love the one that you said about um about you know the, the triviality of, of things like yeah just just everyday things because yeah it's it's very hard just to think oh god what what is this in the big scheme of thing when there's all this terrible stuff going on and we should all be doing something about it you know so it's awesome thank you. Why is it so important to have that definition of Vistoka? I think um because it says what it is and it says what it isn't. You know, um, you've given a definition earlier. Having a word enables, I think, I believe it's firstly given us, it wasn't, I came up with the word, but it doesn't mean it's my concept, my experience, it's our experience. And I feel that, you know, having that, people go, oh my gosh, that's what it is. In one word, in one little small phrase, we now know what, I can try to explain it to people. I think it empowers people when they're talking to parents, to friends, to say it isn't it. And that um, I think also when talking to professionals, going to doctors, going to, to whatever. And, uh, you know, it's my it was my aim this year is to get into more of the psychology journals and and have this, you know, debated a little bit more. But with bushfires and um, house arrest, and I don't use that word lightly <laughs> um, and things like that, I think, you know, it's enabled me not being able to do that. But that's on the agenda. So I think it's given us what it is. It's not a pathology, it's not an illness, it is normal and desirable, as Dr. Michael Clapper says, who was in What the Health, it's normal and desirable to have this. If not, we've got a problem that people can know and find out about this and actually don't think it's a problem. That's really where we should be, uh, putting our efforts to improve some of those things in society. Oh, brilliant, thank you. Absolutely, yeah. Have we got actually anywhere in our questions about where mystopia comes from? Because we know, so. but <laughs> we know where, where the term dystopia comes from. But perhaps we better better pop that in there into our next question. So uh, you know, like you say, you have, you have coined the the term dystopia, which is fantastic, and I think it's so helpful. Like you say, a lot of the time, sometimes labels can be bad, but in a lot of cases, labels can also be good if if you if it provides that you know that's the that's what I've got. That's what it is. That sums it all up. So where did you come up with dystopia? <laughs> Yeah, well, really, my existential training, I guess, helped there. And we've all heard of utopia and dystopia. Utopia being that, you know, sometimes perhaps imagined place of joy and freedom and compassion and kindness and wholesomeness, which I think is possible. And the opposite of that really is an imagined place of darkness, and totalitarianism, greed, selfishness, control, um, you know, and people are talking about what's been happening in 2020 as a dystopia. And I think we're starting to see some of those, that darkness come out of the desire by very small numbers of people who control large numbers under mm. health issues. Um, so you've got these two concepts. And I believe that vegans go through their own experience of living in a, a vegan dystopia, which I call the dystopia. So dystopia is the... Um, deep anguish we feel at knowing about the systematized cruelty towards animals. And then when we tell people, instead of them going, oh my gosh, this is awful, I'd better change. They say all sorts of things, as we know. Don't tell me what to do. It can't be true. The government would never allow it. Oh, it's a few bad apples. We have all these arguments. So we get what's called a trance-like collusion with a dark and dystopian world, animal agriculture, pharmaceuticals, military, and all sorts of things a trance-like collusion with a dark and dystopian world that they're not even aware exists. Like, that's why they call it bad apples. We weren't aware of it. 
But then we go, well, just a minute, if it's possible that, you know, if we label every, and we should, individual fish person and sea life person as an individual, it's something like 1.3 trillion animals a year are killed. We've got to ask, in plain sight, we've got to ask ourselves, what else don't I know? And that's when we go down the rabbit hole, because then we're called a conspiracy theorist. And people love that term at the moment. <laughs> but we say, well, if you didn't know about, did you know there were 1.3 trillion? No. You know, people should be shocked by that, you know, but the number's too big for many. So in a previous uh, interview, you spoke about how often we see um, people respond to this new vegan paradigm, and it often um, provokes, you know, a lot of resistance and anger because we're challenging their existential view of the world, you know. Um, they believe things are how they are because they must be. Um, that's just the way the world works, a lot of them will say. In order to understand our adversary better, um, because they're not our enemy, but they are adversaries, um, can you explain a little bit um, about the psyche we often see in these steadfast carnists, or at least a general psyche? Uh, absolutely. Well, they're just like us. They're good people doing bad things, as my friend James Aspie says. Mm. You know, so we've got to, to come to the table with that, hold the possibility that the majority of people are not psychopaths. They're good people doing bad things, not just to do with animals, but to do with a lot of things. Largely, I think, because of our socioeconomic situation, which is for most people is getting squeezed and squeezed even more every day. And so people will turn a blind eye to a lot of things because they have to feed their children. We do have at the other end a level of greed and abuse going on. But I think the best way in which I've explained it, the best way to look at it is, is the companion to this dystopia I wrote. I just happened to have a copy. <laughs> a lot of people said to me, look, I've worked through my dystopia. You know, it hasn't gone away, but I can do something with all this rage and grief. And I started communicating with people better. But why aren't they changing? Which probably answers your question. Can I take that away now? Yep. <laughs> Is, and so I wrote myths of choice to try and go deep on that from a make it easy layperson's language of existentialism. Because why people won't change is what is fascinated philosophers and economists and human beings and lovers and everything for the ad infinitum all our lives. Is so I the, the, the subtitle to that is why won't people change and what can we do about it? You know, we tell them all the information. You're telling me they're not psychopaths, most people, but why won't they change? And um, and so I believe this, I've identified eight myths or unquestioned assumptions by which people live their world and live their lives. And they don't even know they're living according to them. They give their power away to the outside world. And the best way to find if a myth is operating is when you hear someone say, I should do that. I must do that. I ought to do that. Now, who's according to who? <laughs> yeah, I should get married and have children. Well, according to who? I should save up and buy a house because only responsible people do that. These are cliches, but they dictate a lot of people's lives. People live lives of quiet desperation, as Burrow said, is doing jobs for 40 years because they were told to do that, to save, to buy a house, to look after the next generation. The vast majority of people, eight to, ten, eight to nine people out of 10, do not like going to work. What a waste of our creative resources. So it's really, we've got to pinpoint what those myths or unquestioned assumptions are. So when we're talking to non-vegans, they are subject to all sorts of social and cultural myths, the group myth, the identity myth, the morality, the honesty myth, the things in terms of, they don't even know they're aware of them. So they believe they're choosing, we believe we're choosing, but it's from a very little narrow diet of choices. And so our job is to break through the traps of those embedded beliefs. And I call them little chinks of consciousness. And so sometimes we think if we told everybody everything, they should get it. Well, they don't, unfortunately. That's why people still smoke, you know, <laughs> they really looked at the evidence. Or they eat diets that are killing them. Or they watch television that is brainwashing them. You know, it's, if they looked at them logically, but we're not, we're emotional creatures and our identity comes from all these sort of things. And so, just a little break of trance. To give someone an example, if someone says to you, um, so, so why, um, let's have a little look. So I just really love animals and they're there and they're patting the family dog and whatever. And they, you know they've just sat down to a McDonald's. 
and our backs go up, don't they? We want, what do we want to say to them? What would you say to them, for instance, if they were patting the dog and eating a hamburger? <laughs> oh, I suppose I'd do the usual vegan trope of, you know, you can't love animals and eat them, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Why is that one different and that one's not, you know? <laughs> They're both babies. <laughs> and then they say, that's perfectly valid. And, but they really, and then they get annoyed. You can't tell me what to do. Oh, we've been doing this for years. And then we just put our head in our hands. But if you get a little trance breaker and they go, oh, I really love animals, I usually say, that's fantastic. I love meeting vegans. And they go, well, I'm not a vegan. And I go, well, how does that work? And then they're forced to ask you what a vegan is. And they go, well, how does that work? I go, how does that work? Well, what's it got to do with somebody, one of those hippie people, you know, not eating? I say, oh, do you know what a vegan is? And then they say, no, can you tell me? And they go, well, I say, well, it's actually someone who does everything in their life to not use or exploit animals. So when you told me you loved animals, I presume you meant all of them. <laughs> yeah. But if you do it with sarcasm, all you're going to do is get resistance. But if you do it in a general playful sense, it's, oh, how does that work? So you're not judging them or, you know, it's, but it makes them uncomfortable. It doesn't mean they're going to come vegan on the spot, but you've broken the trance. They can never once again say, I love all animals without remembering that conversation and knowing that their espoused values are not in line with their action. And um, you've made them uncomfortable, which is what we want. We all wish we were more uncomfortable years ago. Do you see what I mean? So you've tried to break a trance. So, you know, I absolutely love meat. And you go, do you know, I absolutely love fantastic, tasty food too. You know, I can, what is it about that? You're like, well, I like whatever. And you then sort of move, they're not resisting you because you've agreed we all like good food as opposed to, yeah, but what about the animal? You know, we go on. In theory, they should respond to that, but they don't. <laughs> Stop the podcast. We would like to take a moment to give a shout out to one of our partners, Beyond Animal. Beyond Animal is a platform to accelerate the growth of a thriving vegan economy globally across industries. Providing digital tools, online funding services, and a multi-sector business directory, Beyond Animal is the platform for vegan entrepreneurs and investors. Head on over to beyondanimal.com and sign up today. Now back to the podcast. Yeah. Well, that is absolutely brilliant. Um, I yeah, I hope the viewers enjoy as much as I just did doing that because it, it's like watching you know, the leg sweep. You know, all of a sudden it's. Um, oh, it's so much better. It's so much better and, and more healthier than being angry um I loved um I heard what you said in an interview um telling somebody about you know and, and you said yourself just before about um you know choosing not to eat in non-vegan restaurants and which is exactly where I'm at now you know before I was kind of like right you know I'm not going to you know push my beliefs heaven forbid on anybody else but now I've actually got to the stage it's like I don't want to be in a place, you know, or I don't want to go around to somebody's house if, if I'm eating my vegan food and they're going to still choose to eat meat or, or something like that. I don't want to do that. And you had some mm. wonderful ways of, of dealing with that, which I've just thrown in that, you know, I wasn't planning to ask, but I thought seeing, seeing as we're on this topic, you know, would, would you be able to share that? Because I, I found that so helpful. Yeah, well, we've all got to decide where we are on that. Um, for me and um, for many vegans, yourself, it sounds as you're there, it's excruciating. It's not about being fussy or being difficult and you've got your nice meal. It's you have to witness people eating decomposing bodies and mucus, basically, which is pretty revolting in itself. But it's actually they are the products um, of murder and violence. And you know, would the animals be happy that we said, oh, well, I'm not doing it. You know, these people are all on a journey and are, their bodies were there. Of course they wouldn't. But I don't pass judgment on that, nor necessarily think it's, you know, you can't wake people up. I mean, James Aspie believes that, you know, if you eat around people that are not eating are eating animals, you've got an opportunity to open the door. For me, it's too uncomfortable. And I say to people, you know, honestly, I'd sit there and bawl my eyes out. And so it becomes about my reaction to it as opposed to them being bad people. Again, you twist that, you know, so they can't shoot the messenger because you're not telling them they're bad. You're saying, I feel uncomfortable and I would be upset. So each of us have to decide that one, I think. Um, it's, but I think in many ways, I know Gary Orofsky, who we don't see much around at the moment. Um, he's taken some time out. I hope he will come back at some stage. You know, he, he said, I, I say to people, Look, I'm happy to have dinner with you. you know, and, but if you're going to eat that, I'll come around for coffee later. Great, that's it. 
And I think give people the choices is you're not saying, you know, I'm, you're bad people. I'm not going to eat with you. I'll be I'll spend time with you. You separate the issue, the time with them versus something else. And there is something, as many people will know, a liberation pledge, where you say that, number one, you won't partake of not only eating, but wearing animals, you know, commodifying animals and not buying designer dogs or for breeders, bringing them into existence for our human use, animal testing, cosmetics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also that you will tell other people about this. You'll make it your mission in life to share this. And also um, that you will not eat in the presence of people, you know, eating animals. Yeah. Um, oh, that's great. That's really helpful because that's exactly what we've been talking about lately. It's something that, you know, want to do. And we're like, oh, yeah, you know, family, what about this? What about that? And it's like, well, this is how you feel. You should be, you know, if, if you if you're going to have dinner with somebody else and you, you don't like what they do, but you still do it, then, you know, it's, yeah. it's like you're respecting their beliefs, but they won't respect yours. And perhaps yeah. like you say, it doesn't mean that you don't want to see people or still be their friend or all of that. You know, it's like, I still like you. I just, we're not on the same page at the moment with something. I don't like what you're doing. I don't, and I actually won't condone it. And if you think of any other social justice movement, let's have a Monday free from being racist. I'm doing my best, but I won't be racist on Monday. Um, I'm only sexist for the rest of the week, but on Mondays, I'm not going to do anything. We would be, I'm doing my best, I'm, I'm, I'm on a journey. We would be appalled. I'm trying to be less racist. I'm trying to be less sexist. Whereas we kind of let people get away with it. I'm on a journey. It takes time. It, you know, and that's why when you're advocating for veganism, you know, you've got to keep coming back to the ethics. Ultimately, do we believe in cruelty or we don't? Do we believe in superiority or we don't? End of story. Now, we've got to be more sophisticated how we talk about that because you basically want to point out to people that there is a misalignment between their values and majority of people do not want to abuse animals. Overwhelmed. That's not just anecdotal. We know that through research. But they've actually, their values are not aligned with it. All we've got to do is align their actions with their values. If we go down the, you know, trying to get them to eat more delicious food, which we do, obviously want to prove that's their barrier. We do want them to stop purchasing animals. But it's very easy for people to slip back if they don't get the emotion, the ethical connection and empathize with the suffering of another. Um, you know, it's, it's like when people say, isn't it? Oh, I'm just vegan for the environment. Well, that's very convenient. That green thing out there, which presumably what you're thinking about is we are the environment. Our attitudes are what we put into our environment. And to say, I don't do it for animals, that they're the ones that are primarily suffering and losing their lives. It's just abhorrent how human beings adjust their psyche to justify the most deepest acts of violence it's quite extraordinary really isn't it it, is. it makes you wonder all things considered sorry <laughs> just thinking you know it makes you wonder all things considered if are there any of us vegans that don't have dystopia i would find that quite hard to believe we must all feel these things or yes. some of them or at least one of them pretty much all the time well, I think you're right. And I think the, the reality is, is that, you know, nobody gets too upset about being told they've got a fussy diet. Not really. Whereas when somebody says that, and it's against the pack back cloth of them seeing what happens to baby calves in New Zealand. And they think it's not about me. <laughs> I think that's the thing is, you know, people can eat what they like as long as they don't cause harm to others. I don't want to go and change the world and be a megalomaniac. But I will speak out for those who are suffering in the process, as I would in any other injustice. And um, but no, I think you're right. It's um, we have to witness people colluding with this normalized violence. Yeah, so true. Um, so you've been a communicator for so many years now, and um, the way we communicate can either you know trigger and put people off or be loving and kind and informative. Um, yeah, as I say, you know, over the years you've helped to teach people how to communicate better. And it's a skill that not many of us are really taught. You know, it's something that we we sort of fumble through, like myself, you know, and um, we just learn of our own accord. Is there anything that um, you can help, um, any sort of tips or anything or advice you can give us to help be better communicators? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one of my other books was Communicate, how to say what needs to be said, when it needs to be said, and the way it needs to be said. But it's a big um hardcover book and you know people often prefer delivery in other ways um but there are some you know and i'm, I'm looking at this for vegans at the moment because we none of us are taught this at school 
Absolutely. The golden rule is to hold back your assumptions is ask questions. Okay. So if someone says, why well, are you vegan? You say, okay, before I answer that question, you know, so I can position my answer, um, what do you know about it? You immediately give an answer back. If anybody says, oh, animals, you know, farmers would never do this. Instead of us going, oh, yes, they would, ask a question. What do you mean by that? Okay, so always ask a question because people have their opinion. It's all ready to go. And I always imagine a big bubble behind their head of what they're saying, full of attitudes and values, and they're ready to push out at any moment and resist what you're going to say. So we might as well give them some airing room to say this. <laughs> so if you just ask them, they say, what do you mean by that? Well, and they just then get it out of their, off their chest almost. But it also gives you more information to better position your answer. You're getting to know your audience. Because then, so if you say, what do you know? And they say, well, actually, I've just done a PhD in diet, diet, being a dietitian. You're going to answer that very differently than if it's the mechanic at the thing who just said, oh, I was reading, a, reading in the paper the other day, you need your protein. You sort of mean, you're, you know, you, you also know the pushback will be different or their information is going to be different. So always ask questions. But also avoid the word why. When we ask the question why, people resist. Jackie, why didn't you come to my birthday at the weekend? Now, if you value our friendship, you are going to make all sorts of excuses because really you couldn't be bothered. You were too tired. Okay? <laughs> and you We've say, oh. never even met. You know me so well already. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of similarities between the humans, Because eh? <laughs> you think, oh my gosh, I, it's not I didn't care about Claire's birthday. If, but actually, I was so tired and I had this full week, I just couldn't make it. Whereas if I ask you, hey, Jackie, I really missed you on Saturday. What happened? You're going to go, oh, Claire, I'm so sorry. You know, I really wanted to call you, but I had a terrible week because we're suddenly on an equal footing. So instead of saying, why aren't you vegan? Why won't you give that up? What is it that makes you, you know, say you believe it's cruel to animals and yet do that? What is it? Can you help me out here? Because if we ask what or when or how or give me an example, we get information. If we ask why, we get a defensive response because you're almost attacking the person. Something as simple as that is so brilliant, you know, so simple. And the third one I would give really is when you hear somebody say something, we tend to assume we've got the picture. Or when we say something to them, we assume they've got it. And but they come back or we go back. And really, we're looking at paraphrasing. So if somebody says, so I won't do eat animals, give it become a vegan for X, Y, Z. You say, OK, well, let me just clarify that. Then what you seem to be saying is and you feed it back to them because something magical happens when they see that story. Head back. You seem to be saying that you think it's cruel to do these awful things to animals and take baby calves. And and yet you've, you're so used to this that you really can't say no to your parents for their Sunday roast. Is, is that, am I right? When they hear it back, they have to admit to that, you see. But you're not going to do it with a sarcasm in your voice. Genuinely curious. So you say it back, and am I correct? And it actually like, so, well, you're correct on the first part, but not. We're then clarifying that we're on the same page. But if you say something to someone and you've given them the reasons, and they go, oh, I'm not sure that would happen. So... You could say, okay, just so I'm clear, can you put in your words what you think I just said? And they go, well, the government would never do that. Well, actually, that's not what I said. Can I say it again? What I am saying is, you see what I mean? You're, because people, the defense mechanisms come when people often don't like the message and so they distort it and they chop bits off they don't like by getting the person to say it in their words or you're putting their words back, um, their words in your words, your this greater clarity now this can be used in everyday conversation of course and we should be taught this at school but none of us are absolutely okay. no it's, it's such awesome yeah i'm learning so much here it's great <laughs> i wish yeah it's it's yeah i'm i'm, I'm banking it all for for later <laughs> um and talking of you know offending people and you know saying the right thing and doing the right thing i mean despite our focus on love and compassion for others as a movement you know the vegan movement is not exempt from infighting you know we have that all the time who's the best vegan who's the most vegan vegan um <laughs> during your interview that we listened to with animal voices vancouver which was wonderful um you spoke about the stages that all groups go through. So um, can you elaborate on forming, storming, and norming? 
I just sure. said that right, didn't it? <laughs> I'm thinking of Storm and Norman, you know, I'm going back a few years now. <laughs> oh, you're showing your age now. <laughs> I know, that's <laughs> coming out now. I think that was the Iraq War, was it? <laughs> it's probably gone over a lot of people's heads. I think you said Storming Norman. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, firstly, you, I'll pick you up on something you said right at the beginning. You said, you know, we try not to offend people. To everybody listening, we cannot offend anybody without their permission. Oh, think about that. The other person has to buy into it. So if you say, Claire, that colour really looks awful on you. Oh, I can't believe you've offended me, Jackie. That is a choice I make as opposed to, okay, well, that's your opinion. This is mine. Do you see? Is, and we say you can't insult someone. You can't insult someone without their permission. Yeah? Is, it's the meaning making we put to it, and then we say, how dare you say that? You know, you, you sort of mean, and it's, it keeps us trapped, really. Is, there was a lovely book many years ago, What You Think of Me is None of My Business. <laughs> and in many ways, it's true. You know, it's, um, but you know, we're social creatures. We want to be like, we want to be long. We want to put rapport into relationships. So, you know, we're not devoid of feeling. But when we just shake those ideas around a little bit is, um, if someone's offended, they're choosing to be offended. You know, so, um, yeah, the, the, it, it seems to be in all groups. They, there's lots of models out there of how groups develop and get to either very functioning or becoming dysfunctional. And there's no difference between families. Is, but let's take a group coming together, a vegan group putting festival together. We don't normally have a clean sheet of paper with a nice objective and a task from beginning to end. They evolve and projects come up. And it seems to be that groups go through, in order to be fully functioning, is have to go through certain stages and often they leapfrog a very important stage. People come together, they may have been working together in many areas, seeing each other, and then they decide to do something together, like a project or a group or whatever, or they come originally at the beginning. And that's called forming. Okay, so there are a lot of models, but this one is quite succinct and it also highlights models that got 10 levels. This is a nice short four to five one. The, the gist of all of them are pretty much the same. We come together, we form. Then we start falling out. So we come together, we were talking about this festival, and then people have different opinions. Or so-and-so, they're all meant to be there at seven o'clock for the meeting, and they, two people are late. And they say, well, we're all volunteers, you know. And we start to get our back up. Or someone promised to do something they didn't, but they didn't tell anyone else in time to. So we all start to fall out. That's called storming. Now, what normally happens at that point for this group, if a group's going to be dysfunctional, they try and push it under the carpet or they kick the people out of the group or they go and moan to someone else. They work around it as opposed to calling people on their stuff. And they then hope to go to a level of what's called norming, which is a mutual belief about how the group works, not only what is going to be done and what people's roles are, how they're going to solve problems, um, whether turning up, being loyal, confidentiality, you know, everybody accepting other, you know, listening to other people's point, whatever those norms are, the social norms, and people try to jump to it and say, this is how we operate, right? We're going to have a little mission statement here. Um, and we get all this, and this is to some extent, and I don't want to go into this, but where we get to people get to be a little bit politically correct. They look to outside things to actually get the rules, when in fact they need to have a conversation that matters is they refer to the rules. We said we wouldn't abuse people, as opposed to calling people on it the moment they did it. And that's leapfrogging the, the, the storming stage. Storming, in order to get truly to norming, where people believe in the values and they, they're not imposed on them, but they come from inside of them. And they, you know, we'll do anything for our friends or and people that we, you know, really, or we value as turn up to vigils or other things, because there is social pressure for us all to, we said we'd be there, we're going to be there. For instance, if we haven't developed that and it's imposed on us from outside, we don't feel emotionally inclined to do it so much. So the storming is essential. Storming is where we realize all our differences. We see norm falling out is normal and predictable. We've got to have a vehicle to have those difficult conversations. To talk about Bill turning up late, Susan, you know, not carrying a weight, always putting the task to all the people. We talk about it and we collectively decide how we're going to work together what are the norms of this group? And then when problems come up, we're able to still talk about them because we have a trust between us. Then we get to performing. Most groups don't do that. Work groups don't do it. And that's what we have politics, people talking behind closed doors, pushing people out, not giving people information. 
largely because they've never really learned to have the conversations that matter. And um, so that's really, and then there was another term for, to that model, which was called adjourning when we come away. But um, so, yeah, so I always say to groups is, um, and I do a lot, I still do team building work in the vegan areas and non-vegan areas in some small companies. I won't work for big corporations anymore. Um, is, is I say to them, before you fall out, you've come together, you've got this great mission that you're going to be doing this. Talk about what's going to happen when you fall out, because you will, and if you don't, it'll come up at some stage. Um, is talk about what's the vehicle to which you're going to have the ability to have a difficult conversation and work through it. If not, you'll keep um, storming, and you'll never get to the collective agreement on how it operates, which is for um, norming. Well, thank you so much for elaborating yeah. on that. I know there's um, lots of little vegan groups at the moment who I see storming. And um, where, do, where do you feel the vegan movement is right now, I guess, as a whole? Can, would you be able to categorize that as any of those groups right now? Yeah, well, it's, you know, without a doubt, I think vegans have been even more surprised at how the polarization of views um, I always say vegans come to the party with all the normal problems of life, all the differing abilities to communicate, to form relationships, to be successful, to um, support people, to read widely, and then we throw dystopia on the top. <laughs> okay, so they will have all the normal problems of life. None of us are perfect. We, you know, we have our shadow, and we can be unkind to people. Hopefully keeping that aware of it and do something about it, as opposed to say it doesn't exist, it exists in all of us. And I actually have seen enormous polarization. For us to truly collaborate and come together, we've got to have a generosity of spirit. We've got to keep our client, our customer in, in mind all the time. That is the animal in the cage, the horse on the racing course, the, the mouse in the testing lab. They're our customers. If we were doing the PR job for them and marketing and selling veganism, I'm using a bit of a sales analogy here, you know, would they be happy with what we're doing? Would we be slagging people off on one side? We wouldn't. We'd get very sophisticated how we shared the solution to our world problems, you know? And so we wouldn't be attacking other people that were trying to do it a different way. You know, we, if we want a healthy, productive, collaborative community of people around the world advocating for animal liberation we've got to donate one healthy adjusted collaborative open-minded person us okay so we need to smarten up our act we need to um, become highly self-aware whenever we've got a problem we're always there we've then actually got to get exquisite communication skills and then really we need to learn something about group you know working in groups um but at any time always ask you know are you showing love or fear? If we're criticizing people, putting them down, shaming them, it's often coming from our fear. And then, but that's not helping. Where if we come from a place of generosity um, and we can say, well, maybe they've got a point of view. It's a bit out there, conspiracy stuff, but maybe I should ask more questions. Is, and not attack people. You know, um, if somebody is advocating a meat-free Monday, do we say that's dreadful? You're just making people feel good about their happy, you know, happy exploitation. Um, many people come to being full-blown vegan activists by doing a meat-free Monday, is find your place in the movement, focus on the ethics of it, but people will have different paths to going there. Um, if we're gonna squabble and spend all our time worrying about the best way to do it. Um, I can give you a link if you'd like to add in your notes of uh, an hour-long interview I facilitated at the Adelaide Vegan Festival called Vegans Behaving Badly with Natasha and Luca from That Vegan Couple. And there was um, Christy Alger, who is the president of Animal Liberation Tasmania, and Luke, oh, I can't remember, Luke, can't remember his second name, dear, um, the person who's running a vegan business. And we, did, we debated all of this. And that might be a very valuable one for people to look at, Vegans Behaving Badly, and that's what we need to be doing there. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. we'll definitely get and link that in for sure. Oh, that would be yeah, that would be great. Definitely be keen to see that one. I mean, listening to you, I don't think there is anybody out there. You know, I think every single one of us should be reading Vistopia um, and its sequel, which will make sure that you know we've got we've got links to where everybody can can get your work from. But I mean, now that Vistopia has been established, how have you seen it applied in both the medical and the everyday world? 
Well, not so much because um, I've certainly got it in, it's got, um, I've had a lot of interviews, Sydney Morning Herald, Triple J, you know, um, just trying to think of things on the top, um, lots of mainstream sort of information, but it's not really hit in that big way, largely because we've had crisis after crisis, I guess. Um, I've, Charles, um, Charles Sturt University up in Western Australia did a, a peer-reviewed article on dystopia and the anguish of being vegan, non-vegan world. And it's really now, as I say, it was meant to be by this time this year to get it into the psychology journals, then psychologists and professionals stopped talking about it. So really, you know, not a lot, really. It's amongst vegans because it's uh, beyond people's radar in many ways, um, unless they've got vegans in the family or they've come across stuff. Um, you know, they may resist that information, but let's change that because, you know, that's important in the same way we've had, you know, carnism as, as a phrase. Not everybody knows that, you know, and we're really looking at different beliefs and value systems. So that's on the agenda. I'm saying it publicly that that needs to happen. <laughs> Absolutely. I can well, agree more. <laughs> hopefully this will get it out to a lot more people as well. And um, yeah, I, I've, I've really been enjoying this talk. It's just been so informative and uh, it's one of the things that, you know, for us doing this series, it's been, it's been brilliant because we've been able to talk to so many different people from so many different views, so many different experts in their field, and just learn so much more about the movement in different aspects. And um, like we were just saying before about uh, with different forms of activism, there's some things that previously I was sort of, I, I that's not my cup of tea, you know, like I wasn't too fussed. I, me, myself, I wouldn't get into arguments about it, but um I feel that disagreement, but through doing this, you know, I've been able to learn more about these things and then get an understanding and then accept it. It may not be my form of activism, but it's something I've learned to accept. And it's just, it's so wonderful to have brilliant knowledge like yours now. And yeah, I, I really can't wait to share this with people. Definitely. I love the, um, you know, what you say about it's the anguish of, you know, being vegan in a non-vegan world, because it absolutely, it, that is how it feels. It, it's, it's anguish that we feel and it's such a, you know, yeah, it's just a horrible, horrible thing. So, I mean, while we wait for that um, utopia that we <laughs> hope for, is there a cure for dystopia apart from, you know, just, just ending all the horrible things that are happening <laughs> that are putting us into <laughs> anguish? <laughs> yeah, well, a cure, what, what does that actually mean? I mean, I think it's a case of living with, we have to live with polarities and, you know, um, there's been many attempts over our world in very destructive ways, like Nazi Germany. It's let's clean up the world, you know, and someone made a decision that that group was bad and this one was good. You know, clean everything up. We've got to realize that we are a, a combination of things, that everything, I think we're starting to see this at the moment. And this is sort of moving more into the sort of spiritual realm. But I ran a podcast recently with Dr. Bill Tuttle and the World Peace Diet. And um, I've turned that into a blog, actually, on the veganpsychologist.com. People can get that. It's an hour-long um, interview. We're, we're going to do a series together. But, you know, both of us really agree that, you know, we are consciousness having an experience. Our separation comes by you – know, it's separation that causes our problems in many ways. And, and I was listening to Gary Orofsky again recently, and he says that things like racism and sexism and, you know, these isms, come later in life you stick two children of different nationalities together young ch children babies and things they don't worry about what color or shape or facial orientation they have with each other but we force them into speciesism that's our first ism when we start feeding children the the products of murder which is what it is and we separate the family cat or dog from what is on the plate for sunday lunch we have automatically separated them and us superiority. And that then goes on to go against other things. So a cure for dystopia is really realizing that we are, I think, all expressions of consciousness. We're having an embodied experience and we've got far more in common than we haven't. And our fighting and moving between us is, we're trying to make sense of what it is to be alive, existentialism. So I encourage people to, in nearing that world, is to be generous with other people is realize that everyone is struggling in many ways. The resistance comes not because people are bloody minded. I hope you allow swearing on your show. <laughs> in Welsh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, was that, just, was that just being, you know, I just said something wrong then, didn't I? I'll be upsetting somebody else out there. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, they choose to be offended, but um, I always say I apologise in advance to anyone who's never used that word in their lifetime. <laughs> is um, if people are struggling, it's you know our school system has reduced us many ways to seeing fixed ways of reality. We feel when someone challenges a view, and this is happening in the vegan moment moment, we feel personally affronted if it affects our identity. When in fact we're bouncing ideas around, <laughs> you know, when we're opening up. So be generous with people. Um, play your part in the vegan movement. I encourage people to be activists. Now, whether you're going to make cupcakes or pot roasts for people, potlucks for people, or whether you're out on the, doing undercover footage, you have to do something. We cannot, I don't think, and there's my judgment coming in, of course it's, you know, being vegan actually is nothing special. It takes us back to ground zero. We stopped taking what was never ours. We just come back to the ground. What are we going to do beyond that? The least we can do is have some conversations and invite people who will thank us for, for taking, daring to be criticized by daring to tell them and they will thank us. And, but what we don't want is, well, why didn't you tell me earlier? So. Well, thank you so, so much for that. Now, you're one busy lady and uh, you do so many different projects. So where can people go to follow and keep up to date with all your wonderful work? Well, thank you for your kind words and thank you for you. All of us are doing great work in the world. You know, it's, some of us are on the world stage. Some of us never get to see the light of day in, in other people's eyes. But all of us are doing something. That's, we play our own part in this. Um, really, veganpsychologist.com, there's lots of free resources on there as well. I'd encourage people to look at veganpsychologist.com forward slash myths, M-Y-T-H-S. There's a four-part free mini-series on how the myths are choice. Um, why people want to change and what we can do about it, getting to really get an idea, and if that resonates with you, you'll be able to use that as, you know, moving forward as a tool. There's 30 days on how to talk about veganism, free 30 videos called Vegan Voices. So just go on to veganpsychologist.com, really, and then take it from there. Perfect. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, we'll put those links in the description for everybody, and I hope everyone enjoys this as much as I have. You know, I, my, my cheeks are starting to hurt now because I'm smiling <laughs> too much again. <laughs> I got a sore neck from nodding, you know, because everything just makes so much sense. And, you know, the, the question that I asked just before about is there a cure for dystopia? Maybe that's, maybe we shouldn't be looking for a cure for dystopia yet because dystopia is because we care, right? So we don't want to stop caring because when we stop caring, we stop fighting and that's not what we need to be doing. So actually, that would have been a much better answer had I given that one. But you're right. <laughs> is actually, you think about, I always say to people, and um, when people are anxious or depressed, I say, love your anxiety, love your depression, it's saving your life. Your body is shouting loudly, something is wrong here. Our dystopia is telling us something is way out of balance. And if we got over it, we got complacent, we wouldn't be out there advocating for animals. And that's not getting animals out of cages. Thank you for listening to this interview. We hope you found it informative and entertaining. To learn more about Claire's work, check out claremann.com. Once again, be sure to follow us on our social media platforms for future episodes. This has been Vegan FTA, vegan for the animals.